Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, Euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm David Weston and joining me for the first time in 2023 are Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hull of Agora Energy Vendor. Hi team, how are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks for asking, Dave. Uh, Just getting up to speed with everything that's sort of happening and it feels to me that 2023 is already in full swing. I mean, there's so many reports coming out and you know on to what happened in 2022 what might happen this year so it's all very exciting um but yeah very busy hey hey everybody it's great to be back but same feels already it's like half a year gone since we last spoke we've definitely packed it into the first few weeks of the year um but as we slowly emerge from the long dark winter days many grid operators around europe are breathing a sigh of relief a milder winter than expected, meant there wasn't the need for the increased levels of fossil fuel generation to meet heightened demand. A new report by environmental think tank Ember found wind and solar technologies generated a fifth of EU electricity in 2022, a new record, and for the first time overtaking fossil gas. Coal power share increased by just 1.5 percentage points to generate 16% of EU electricity in 2022 with year-on-year falls in the last four months of the year as Europe prevented a threatened return to coal power in the wake of the 2022 energy crisis. Our guest today is Ember's Head of Data Insights and lead author of the new report, Dave Jones. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on What Matters Today and so soon after the report has been published. Is the European electricity sector out of the woods then for this winter, do you think? Yeah, we're we're doing well through this winter. Um, uh, we were helped with a lot of luck in the last in the first few months of uh, of winter, going in with a very mild uh, October and uh, start to November, and that sorted the the gas situation out quite nicely. And then on the power side, which had been suffering from um, uh, low hydro levels and from the French outages. Um, on the nuclear plants. Um, there's good progress on both of those sides, which means that um, from uh, on the electricity side, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's stronger than ever and probably uh, as good as, as people would hope to, 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 to be at, at this point in winter. Dave, um, I, I'm a big fan of your reports and I always uh, get all your tweets uh, where you say it's going to get launched next week and then it's tomorrow and then and then when it's out um, I I can't wait to open it and and see the data. <laughs> I mean, one thing that really struck me um, is how slow it is often to get this data when you look at your know, national statistics uh, agencies or the European Commission Eurostat. You know, it often takes you know three four months until you can actually see the data. Um, from the last quarter. So I'm just curious, how, how do you do it? I mean, how do you pr- produce a report uh, just a month um, once the year has finished with data for 27 countries uh, with, yeah, in a very sort of granular fashion? You know, you can kind of drill down by country technology and you see, you see all of that. Whereas it seems to be the case, getting that data 
just by going into the German government's website or the European Commission's website, uh, at least for me, uh, is an impossibility. So I'm just curious how you do it. It, it made me laugh uh, uh, last week when the Eurostat uh, tweeted out that they just launched the uh, the renewable numbers for 2021, and I'm like, do I do I take a poke? Do I take a poke? No, no, just leave it. Just leave it. <laughs> um, no, it is very very hard to get all of that, and um, um, and we rely on like kind of a, um, a as many official numbers going into that as possible. So we use the the Eurostat data going up to 2021. Um, and then we have to add on um, the, the the difference in the NSOE data that comes from that. So obviously the NSOE the data is, is is coming through in real time, so you can get a picture of that. But um, like anyone that will know that um, that that looks at NSOE data, there, there are parts that are missing to that. Um, in particular, there's a lot of kind of district heating that's missing from that. Some weird things over uh, coal gas mix in Netherlands and Italy. And then the Netherlands has got some uh, a lot of renewables data missing from that. So you've got to be quite careful about how to do that. And then um, in answer, how do we do it? We have a we have a, a awesome data team of, uh, of five people that, um, that are pulling uh, electricity generation, not only from Europe, but uh, monthly um, from, uh, from across the world in there. So I think we're up to 76 countries now where we're tracking monthly generation um, in there. So all of that's made available on our website. Um, we have two releases through the month, uh, one on the second or third of the month with EU data, with the US data and Australia data and other countries that you can get immediately. And then one uh, middle of the month when you've got China and um, some other countries that have been added into that as well. So um, we've managed to, to, to build up a, a really uh, awesome team there in our, in our little niche of tracking electricity generation data. And in terms of translating it into a report, um, I was just um, talking Michaela about the role at Agora because I uh, the first uh, this is our seventh report for the Europe side and uh, the first uh, four I wrote uh, with Agora and Igivender and uh, and um, three of them um, were actually in Berlin where I uh, came over and uh, spent a week in the offices writing it with uh, with colleagues there which is really interesting so yeah it's coming in getting that data and then trying to turn it into a story but when you're tracking those stories through the year um, to some extent this was kind of writing itself and what happened during 2022 was really um, uh, typified by that record low nuclear the record low hydro that we'd been tracking through the year so I was trying to then um, uh, to, to work out how to how to present that in a way that makes sense and there was the kind of new trends i guess that were coming through there that we were adding in at the last minute was around the electricity demand fall and just how big that is so that's a really interesting one that's really coming to the fore just in the last couple of months um and uh yeah and obviously a kind of an update on the winter situation generally with with, with where we are and um like we've already covered um uh, quite a quite a reassuring position that we're in now and uh, can you can you say a bit more about your your assumptions that you've taken because you're very bullish and very optimistic uh, about uh, the increase in wind and solar, um, but I so I don't know. Let's say costs developments, input developments. How do you how do you determine your model? So the, uh, the, the the report itself is trying to look at the historic picture, that picture up so far. So when you're looking at the electricity transition, you're interested in where you are today. You're interested in where you're heading for and where you need to be heading for. Um, and really, this sets um, uses the mostly historic data to get to where you are today and then trying to work out some of like the, the, the flags, I guess, that 
that that pick up on that about give you clues about where you need to be. Um, there's all sorts of people that are doing modeling, looking to the future with the pathways and their own forecast. So we try not to overlap too much with that in here. The uh, uh, we, we took the slight liberty in here of, <laughs> of trying to think through how 2023 20, itself may play out. And because of um, uh, that pick of that acceleration that happened last year in wind and solar, we know that that's going to continue. We know there's going to be some, we well, expect there's going to be some rebound back in the from the French nuclear outages from last year and the same for hydro. So that picture for 2022 is a very different picture for 2023. So the reason why we wanted to try and kind of um, create some very rough assumptions and, and kind of finger waving in the air, hand waving in the air of what 2023 might be look like is to try to contrast it against where we were in 2022. And it's clear that 2023 is really going to be that year or the, the people wake up and notice how fast the electricity transition has come so far. Um, and, and almost last year was almost kind of lulled us into a false sense of security. So um, we're about to get quite a rude awakening, I think. I mean, you're good at messaging, like the, the thing that, uh, that David quoted at the beginning, wind and solar together overtook gas. So, I mean, it's just, it's a good message. And I saw it being picked up a lot also on Twitter, but also outside in the real world. Um, you could always you can always rely on Carbon Brief to come up with a little animation. <laughs> so uh, uh, they, 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 they they did a great <laughs> one. So trying trying to give some trying to give some sense of that momentum and how quickly it's happening to be able to say it was only back in 2019 that wind and solar overtook yeah. coal, and now yeah. we're already at that stage where wind and solar have now overtaken gas generation. And that's the real. Um, it's a real kind of turning point and, and, and really kind of, like, like you say, um, uh, story, storytelling of how, how fast that electricity transition is happening in, in Europe. I'm just not so sure if I share your optimism on upscaling of wind, because I think on solar, we saw really that things really accelerated. Solar Power Europe also and IEA, we saw this. Although you have also a higher figure than I found in Solar Europe for the deployment in Europe, the additional you have a significantly higher number in there, I noticed. But I don't see yet the picking up of the pace for wind. Uh, yeah. So so at the moment, wind generation is still providing more terawatt hours of new clean electricity than, than solar is. It's, it's, it's generating twice as much um generation in Europe as, as solar power is. So the growth rates naturally, <laughs> uh, you'd expect to be a little bit slow where solar is still on that, 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 uh, that, that early growth rate. Um, so that's one thing to say. The, um, the, a lot of wind's problems at the moment, like well, there are some really sizable pro uh, problems that the, the wind industry has at the moment. And you kind of are seeing them being dealt with and taken seriously for the first time. I think that the wind industry have like spent so long rattling on about the permitting and planning like issues over the last couple of years, and now you are seeing that they're taken, uh, being taken uh, uh, half seriously at a Europe level and by by national governments in a way they weren't be before. And I guess when we come uh, coming out of the, the the kind of chaos of of last year, what what we saw happening was a big pickup in, in in the level of ambition from governments. And you can see that manifest itself very quickly within solar because the timescales are too slow on solar. And you know that they get a bit a bit 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 longer on wind to be able to work through. And the question is now at the highest level, there is this newfound ambition to really accelerate 
on wind and push wind to that next level. So um, you've kind of got to believe that the, that the policymakers do find a way to, to make that happen in a way that works for the industry, because clearly it's not, you look at the problems of Vestas and Siemens and you know that that's not working for the industry at the moment. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and that's something we'll get into uh, on this podcast, hopefully very soon. Um, do you think, we mentioned how uh, wind and solar are now surpassed gas generation uh, for electricity uh, in Europe. Is that now the new normal? Is that something we're going to, is that now, is this the first year of that just being the accepted standard? Um, and or do you, could you see instances perhaps where it might dip back down slightly and fossil gas take over uh, for whatever reason? So we're on the on the kind of scale of coal gas switching at the moment, where uh, we're all, we're actually all in on 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 coal, and uh, um, so so there is potential upside on gas. Um, but if there was, then coal is going to fall even faster. We're in a world now where you've got um, wind and solar coming on at such a rate that it's more than offsetting anything to do with Germany's nuclear phase out or anything like that. You can see. You know that fossil generation is going to be falling year on year. It's a question of which is going to suffer most. Is it is it going to be most of that coming off coal, or is most of that going to be coming off gas? At the moment, most of it's coming off gas. When you look through what's happening so far this year, gas is still the most expensive fuel. So I guess it's no surprise that that most of that will see the biggest fall. We will look through and we can see that fossil generation is going to be um, um, fall so much in 2023. You, you would expect most of that to come off gas. You know coal's got to be, with such a big fall, you know coal's going to be falling as well. So this whole like um, Eurocoal line, which is still saying uh, that you've got the, um, you've now got um, a, a new focus to get off gas. So coal generation is going to start rising. It, it's not going to start rising. It's just going to fall less quick than it was going to fall before. I just like to um, uh, put an argument to you, which I hear regularly from people who are skeptics of the energy transition. And that it goes like this. I mean, they, they would say that, um, yes, we have reduced coal in, in Europe, but we have just been able to do that by primarily switching to fossil gas. And this got us into the mess in the first place. That's why we imported so much gas from Russia. Uh, that's why prices are so high. We should have stuck with coal and that would have prevented those price rises. Uh, so could you disentangle that a little bit for us? And and first of all, I think uh, it would be interesting to hear from you what, what the data is showing. To what extent are we just replacing coal with gas? Um, and, and secondly, what's what's your view in, in terms of go, look, looking ahead? Will, will we still see significant dependency on gas? How long will it take us? To reduce gas to an extent where you know it, it plays a very minor role in the electricity mix. Yeah, I, um, that that was a lot harder to explain back in um, kind of as you went through 2013, 14, 15. What you saw across Europe was um, um, very fast falling coal generation, which people are trying to package as a, as a as a very good news story around the transition. A part of that was being picked up with clean energy, of course, with wind and solar in particular, of course. Um, but a large amount of that was also gas generation picking up. Um, and now we're in a situation in the last few years that gas generation has been um, has been stable across the EU. Um, and I think 2023 is going to be really that start of that turning point where you see gas generation start structurally falling. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure anyone kind of expected that happen it, uh, for it to 
that it's going to happen quite as quickly as it will. And certainly policymakers take that quite as seriously as they are taking it now. But you can see that um, before where there was a really strong focus to want to phase out coal across the whole of Europe. And now the talk or the, or the thinking in, in so many quarters is how do we actually start that phase out of gas as well? Um, and, and obviously, and working on the, the heating sector is even more pertinent for you. So you'll be following it very closely. But on the on the on the power sector, it's really really interesting because you, you've almost kind of got these two fuels now that are going to be battling to phase down each other over over the the rest of this decade. Um, in terms of how far does that have to go, um, it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. Um, you know that with those um, that that those the, the rise in wind and solar in each of the hours that you're going to have more and more hours with very low levels of, of both coal and gas needed in the mix across Europe, um, which is really nice. And then in the hours that you have less of the wind and solar, you're still going to need gas as the backup. And that's going to ha- reducing the number of hours more and more that you, and the amount of generation that you need in those hours more and more if you go through the electricity transition and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, and really that issue is around kind of storage of electricity uh, almost that your um, that, that gas almost as, as wind and solar pick up gas almost becomes lower and lower load factor but you need some better storage to go alongside that so part of the question is is really around how the rest of the electricity transition fits around that and how fast therefore that gas can be allowed to fall um, with that is always um, freed up on that journey, but the big falls are really going to happen um, uh, potentially quite quickly, um, which is really encouraging. Um, and then, um, and then, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a lot harder as we go through the electricity transition to try to get off those last few percent. But you, when you look at the big picture and you look at how to be reducing emissions um, and how the power sector fits into the broader economy, you know that you want the power sector to do the heavy lifting at the start. And it was really interesting when you look at policymakers' responses to, to the Russia invasion last year, and they're like, how do we, how do we reduce, uh, reduce gas uh, demand that quickly? And it must have been quite frustrating for you, Jan, in, the, in a way that like, the immediate response was, like, was always on wind and solar because it's kind of almost what's, what, what's known best. And then, then after that, and there was like a breath, and they're like, oh, right, okay, no, then there's all the other sectors, like heat pumps, like we need to go big on these, and how do you bring that in? But it was almost a kind of instant response that to reduce gas demand, the power sector had an awful lot to give that it can give quite quickly, and we know how to do it, and doubling down on that wind and solar. So um, where we're tracking and tracking and specifically interested in the electricity transition, um, we, we're, we're very happy that the, the, the policy makers um, really have decided hard to do that and begin that gas phase down uh, um, as aggressively as they're talking about. Yeah, it's been a long-standing frustration of mine um, to see 90% of the coverage in the media about energy being about electricity. But when you look at um, the contribution of electricity to our final energy demand, uh, you know that's that's a lot less than 90%. Uh, and most of the gas that we use, uh, it, we use in buildings for, for heating, it's not it's not burning gas to make electricity. Um, not saying it's it's not important, but it's it, yeah. You know, I think certainly yeah. the building sector and the industrial sector, uh, other end users, they deserve the same level of attention. And and slowly we're getting there, but it's going to take some time. Maybe Amber needs to release uh, an annual uh, heating um, decarbonization review or something like that to track all these things. Currently, no one is really doing that well. Exactly. 
you're doing this too well. There's a bias on electricity and then you communicate so well. You're not helping. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's going to be really interesting to, uh, I mean, I imagine through, through, through the years, Jan, we're going to let the, as the, as the, the heat, heat pumps pick up. We'll need to be working more and more to understand that within the electricity transition because that's, a, that's I, I guess, the, uh, the next challenge for the electricity sector is is that actually some of those um, those lulls in generation that you get from from wind um, and when it does overlap with cold periods that you need that pickup for electricity for heat pumps. How do how do you, how does that then relate to the storage expectations that you need? Um, for the electricity um, uh, sector. Um, So it's it's really, that'll be a really interesting talking point. For me, it's really, um, 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 I I always known as a bit more of a kind of 80-20 approach on things. And for me, the the electricity sector is really about the 80-20 things. How do you get the big wins out of it and kind of squeeze it a bit more and a bit more? Um, We don't need to be worrying exactly how to get to that 100% solution in that level of detail at the moment when you can see the level of innovation that's happening on the ground at the moment. You know the right building blocks are in place, the solutions are going to come along. um, and, and the moment is just about making sure that that momentum continues enough that both coal and gas are, are falling year on year. If I may ask on that, so basically a report mainly deals with how do we do decarbonizing our power mix, right? Uh, I haven't read the full report, but then what do you say, how do we do with upscaling to meet the rising electricity demand? Do you say something about that also to serve uh, the other sectors, yeah, for example? No. Because this is more kind of backward looking on the on the historic data so far, we there's there's not too much to to pull out and discuss on that at the moment. The we know that that there is some pickup in electricity demand from some of that electrification that we can see happening through electric vehicles and through industry and through uh, through through heat pumps on the ground. Um, but in total, so far, it's that like those numbers are pretty small. Towards the middle of this decade and the end of this decade, those numbers are going to really start impacting overall electricity demand. And the bit that we certainly do highlight within the report is to make sure that people aren't left um, um uh what's the what's the word called uh, um uh, uh, uh surprised and uh on the electricity demand falls that we're seeing at the moment so um we're seeing very big electricity demand falls at the moment why are we seeing them um i suspect most of it isn't genuine energy efficiency as we think of it and they could quite quickly be a rebound to much of that so we shouldn't lull ourselves into a false sense of security that um, electricity demand is going to be falling or stable. It's not. It's going to be rising pretty quickly um, as we go later through this decade, and we've got to be ready for that. And what that means in practice is that means we need to be building and planning for that amount of clean energy that's going to supply that. Otherwise, we're going to get caught off guard really quickly, and fossil generation is not going to be falling as fast as we would have hoped in our heads. Uh, Dave, I wonder if I could ask, the, there's a significant fall in the share of uh, hydro and nuclear power uh, in electricity generation last year is that a trend you will you can see continuing oh it's a horrible year wasn't it um it was a horrible year um yeah uh with uh, the lowest for at least there's at least two i think it goes back to 2000 since at least 2000 for both eu-wide hydro generation and also eu-wide nuclear generation um so on the on the nuclear side um you've uh a two about uh, just over two thirds that fall about 69 percent of that fall was from falling French generation, 
Um, most of the rest of it was from the German nuclear plants that had come offline um, as the phase down had continued. So, um, so actually, it was like the nuclear problem was was mostly from the French outages. You'd expect most of them to to come back over the next couple of years. EDF have submitted kind of forecasts about their level of generation this year. They expect to pick up and then to be closer towards normal next year and only be at normal by 2025. This is uh, a remarkably slow progress to um, to to recover from those the, the, those corrosion outages that that were all identified last year. So um, so on the nuclear side, where it will. Uh, we anticipate it to be roughly unchanged this year, so some 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 increases in the, the, the French units coming back online, but offset by the final um, plants in Germany that will come offline uh, in April of this year. Um, and then there was um, um, a, a unit in, in Belgium which came off uh, three days ago, um, but broadly, uh, and you got the, the unit coming on in Finland, but broadly, nuclear generation, that's the kind of pathway for it, is hopefully stable this year. Slight pickup next year as more French gener generation comes back again. Um, um, and, and then potentially just kind of a few older units coming off. And uh, it's obviously a big question about how quickly some of those older units would come off. Um, on, the, on the hydro side, um, it's really interesting. Um, uh, most of the problems last year were in Alps and the Iberia region. Um, Nordic was was about just over uh, over normal, slightly over normal. Um, but really, the worst level of generation the Alps has seen um, since at least two thousand, and, and really bad levels in Spain as well. Um, I don't know. I don't really understand hydrology enough. I I can see the reservoir levels that are coming back close back to where they've come from. But it was a five, one in five hundred year drought across much of Europe. So what's hard to know is how that's impacted the groundwater le levels that are more um, a long term basis that might impact into this year into next year. Obviously, we've got El, and El Nino, the strong El Nino impact that we expect to swing round that that may reduce uh, rainfall this year and next year. So. Um, it's always hard to, to to know what's going to happen. You'd expect some bounce back. You're not going to have another one in 500 year drought this year again. Um, but they're the they're the issues, obviously, that that people need to be kind of tracking and thinking about. Um, um, but yeah, we we I'd hope that you, yeah <laughs> you're not going to be seeing a one in 500 year every year. So yeah, there will be some rebound back to that. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Does that the volatility perhaps then we're seeing in in nuclear and hydro, and then obviously uh, the need, and I guess still the volatility in gas and uh, coal, that requires things like wind and solar to accelerate even more to offset those volatilities, and so you can be a lot more stable in your prediction for electricity share, particularly. I know we mentioned we don't want to talk just about electricity, Jan, but. Um, particularly in the electricity that we need the wind and the solar generation and maybe other renewables as well. You can talk about wave and tidal and floating wind. and But fundamentally, those need to accelerate even further just to offset the fluctuations that we're seeing in more traditional, say, uh, generation. 
Yeah, I mean, wind and solar have like outer fluctuations, obviously, that are pretty big on the annual level. Those fluctuations uh, are much less so, especially when you look across Europe as a, as a whole on average. So um, what was really interesting on looking at last year and what happened was um, because France had most of that nuclear deficit that we're talking about and then the hydro impact hit France um, as as hard as uh, almost as hard as um, uh, Spain and Italy where uh, which were all really badly impacted what you saw was this massive change in interconnector uh, trades from from France where France generally um, historically is the biggest exporter of electricity um, across Europe um, and for the first time I think since 1980 it turned to be a net importer of uh, of, of electricity so um, the flow switched from UK from Germany from Spain which were normally um, sucking some of that nuclear power out of, of, of France in the off peaks in the overnights um, needing to flow it back towards France to meet that deficit in generation that it had um, so when you're talking about kind of flexibility going through um, there's all parts to that there's so many different tools in the toolbox for that um, and uh, interconnectors really showed in 2022 just how important they are in flexibility, even before you start talking about wind and solar, just on the, 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 the nuclear and the hydro flows. They were, they were essential, providing some of that flexibility to solve the problems that France had. What would be your message to the politicians that at the moment deliberate on the power market design reform, as you might know? What, what message would you give together with your report, say, about regulating the wholesale price or about, you know, stronger, mes stronger measures around peak demand? What, what would you recommend? I, I, I think, I think that, that there's, a lot, there's a lot of things to say on that. Um, if you're a bit deeper into that, some of my colleagues at Ember are, I, I, I'm not. From, from my perspective, there's two very clear impacts to pull out of this. Um, um, and the first one is the... Um, that transition is going to happen much quicker than people think. And it was almost, like I said before, it's almost kind of disguised and hidden within 2022, and it's going to hit people very hard in the face in 2023. And I think that when you're talking about electricity market design, it's a little bit easy to think about it from a hat of 2022 of a shortage of electricity and um, um, rather than what we're going to be seeing over the next few years, which is a real surplus of electricity during certain hours of the day and how you cope with that and how that, how that features into the grid. So that would be my first <laughs> bit of advice and thought process that needs to frame the electricity market design argument. The second thing is, is from a price perspective, that means that um, there, there's going to be so many more hours that do um, um, uh, decouple from fossil prices. So um, if nuclear and hydro levels last year had been at normal levels, you would have got an awful lot of more hours that would have decoupled away from that really super high gas price. And, uh, and you can tell that that was really freaking politicians out an awful lot about having those really high electricity prices because of the gas price. In the long term, as you keep putting more and more generation to the grid and gas generation is providing a lower and lower um, number of hours in the mix, then you're going to end up with more and more hours that decouple and pour down total wholesale prices. So, um, I don't know what that means for recommendations <laughs> about what they're thinking about how to do it, but it's a, it's a very real observation of, of I think, where, where 2023 will be and, and the transition over the next couple of years that they'll need to bear in mind. 
Dave, I want to drill down a little deeper in the report to a country level, if I may. You know, I, I um, remember very well having a discussion 20 years ago with two German power system engineers who told me renewables can never contribute more than 5% to the total amount of electricity produced. And uh, of course, your report now says it just wind and solar have contributed 22% uh, last year to total electricity production. Which countries uh, stand out um, you know, when you look at the 27 countries you have analyzed uh, to you, maybe perhaps both in terms of how far they have come um, in terms of penetrations of wind and solar, um, but also the speed of the transition? Because I, I imagine there would be some countries that um, had pretty low levels of renewables, but have accelerated quite fast. And there will be other countries, for example, Norway, that had hydro for a very long time. And you see much more mature markets where you know that increase isn't quite so steep. So I, I'd just be curious whether you can give us a few examples of countries that you think are um, particularly noticeable. No, no, it's a it's a, it's a really good question. Yeah, and those penetrations are just increasing faster and faster through throughout Europe. Um, um, for me, there's 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 all sorts of examples to pull out in there. Probably the the biggest one, the biggest change that has happened of any country in the last couple of years is in the Netherlands. So, um, uh, in the Netherlands last year, fifteen um, percent of the electricity was from solar. Uh, another eighteen percent was from wind. Um, uh, so together, 33%, a third of the, the generation was from, from wind and solar. So you compare that back to your, you know, your quote from all those years ago. Um, just three years before, in 2019, that was 14% in total, now rising to 33%. So almost a fifth of the whole of the Netherlands electricity demand had switched across towards wind and solar in that time, which is such an incredible transition it does really show how quickly uh, scale up can happen um, in certain countries when when countries put their mind to it and I, I think that for, for for me I think that um, yeah we've we talked a little bit about wind and um, and that wind is kind of slow steady growth up and you kind of hope that it's gonna gonna have a, a another boom moment uh, that comes with it um but still providing so much electricity in into europe's mix but the speed of that ramp up in solar um is potentially even quicker and the scale at which it can happen i it is really interesting for governments to try and get their head around so when they're sitting there and they're looking at their total level of level ambition that they want in the next few years and they're going oh christ these are all the levels things are going to have to on wind to make it happen Actually, on solar, it's the opposite. They're assuming these numbers are going up like that. And what's actually happening on the ground is faster, faster, faster deployment than what they're, they're, they've, they had envisioned or they were even planning to have or desiring to have within their numbers. And it's certainly something on, on, on solar power, Europe's numbers, when they pulled it out, they've tried to, try to make sure that you know, governments are almost aware of this, that they're putting it into their policies and they're pointing towards you know, the NDCs for 2030 uh, to say, look, you... Like you're already, you're already in so many countries, you're almost at this level of solar power that you're anticipating in 2030 and it's only 2022. So it's really interesting. And when we go through, like when you look at that rise of, of solar panel, uh, solar power, I don't know if anyone remembers back in, uh, I remember the big kind of party that solar power Europe was having and talking up hitting 100 gigawatts in 2018 um, of solar capacity across Europe. Last year, it crossed 200 gigawatts and more than doubled in 
in four years. And you look at their forecast for another four years, to 2026, and their minimum forecast is for it to double again to 400 gigawatts. Their high case is to triple to 600, almost 600 gigawatts. The, the level of growth is outstanding in all of that. And um, and when, when you look across the, uh, uh, what, what that means is that this year, probably there's going to be some tipping point towards the end of this year where there's going to be more solar on the ground uh, operating in Europe than there is combined coal and gas generation operating on the ground in Europe. So that's the magnitude of, of, uh, of the scale up that we've seen over the last few years on solar. Here goes the headline for the next edition. <laughs> yes, quite. quite. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah I heard that's, uh, that's uh, that out of all the, the, the turning points, that's the, uh, it's got to be, uh, got to be one of the biggest, right? <laughs> Is there a risk then perhaps that we're growing or it's growing too quickly or expanding too quickly? And are we going to see that come back and bite us a little bit in terms of maybe either grid operation or prices absolutely collapsing? Oh my God, there's so, when you, a transition of this scale is happening at this speed, there's so many things that can happen that can unbalance things or hold it back or to unintended consequences, I like to call them. So everyone's got to be on the watch out everywhere for, for all of those. Um, so I think that, you know, from, from the way that I think about it, you talk about grid flexibility is a big one, market design is a massive one. But actually, the, probably the two biggest risks are um, firstly for, for solar, or firstly the dependence on China um, uh, uh, supply chain. So how does that unfold with international relations over the next few years? And how can Europe do more to expand its own manufacturing capacity? Um, and secondly, you want this, you want this to be happening every year for the next like decade, two decades. You do, so it's not about turning the taps on, turning taps off. Like how do you, how do you ensure people that politicians don't suddenly turn the taps off on this? And the things that freak them out more than anything is, is from a public um, um, perception perspective. Um, um, and that means that solar panels got to be seen seeing to deliver cost bene uh, benefits for the consumer in terms of um, lower bills um, that it delivers on security and doesn't impinge on security. But probably more than important than anything, from a planning side, um, uh, that you always see in every country so much backlash when solar panels are put in inappropriate places on high, like high-grade um, agricultural land in particular. There's enough space across Europe that you can be putting solar panels on rooftops or low-value land um, out there. You're going to make sure that you're not using that space that um, that is then going to give the the the, the naysayers or or, or or just just generally from the public perspective like it makes no sense to be doing that to using up valuable agricultural land. So, so certainly from a planning perspective, um, I feel that there really needs to be careful thought on that to make sure that um, public opinion is kept on side for solar um, in particular because the land use site, the land the, the size of land use that's needed for this transition. Um, is pretty big um, and it's got to be done as responsibly as possible. I would like to ask you um, a question about why you publish uh, the data and the reports that you publish. What, what, you know, what do you hope to achieve by doing that? Because, of course, the data could be found if you were going to spend some effort, you, you could find the data um, uh, with some delay. But you, know, you, you present it very nicely and accessible. Um, for for people, but what 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 do you hope to uh, to actually achieve by by doing that, Dave? 
Yeah, we got, like I said, we got a data team of five people. And one of their key things is um, that they're kind of very passionate about is how do you how do you make open data available to people to give it to, in a way to the right people, for them to be able to create impact from. Um, and that's quite hard to be able to do. Um, uh, and um, But it is just so important to be able to do. And I, I guess the, I get so happy when people are, you see our data being used in different ways. It's not just the same charts and the same analysis being used, that people are using it in their own way. Um, uh, I, I mean, data is, when, you're, when you've got such a fast-moving transition, you need to keep on top of what's happening all the time. You need access to high-quality data um, to be able to understand that transition and where it's uh, coming through. And generation data is only one part of the data that you need on all of that. Um, other people are feeding other bits into that data. But and the whole kind of community of providing uh, climate and energy data um, for free out there that people can use and know where to go for is 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 just so critical to the transition. And um, and uh, I guess what like the role that we also play in that is on as well as the kind of downstream side of making it like trying to get people to use it is also on the upstream side as well as so trying to point out to system operators or to, to to ministry of energy about how their electricity data works and how they can improve it so um we're about to we're at the moment we're just putting the the final touches to a report on um transparency of electricity across asia um that we released a couple of years ago um, and some countries uh, get you got some really amazing real-time data that's um, better than it is in Europe because it has the uh, uh, a unit data and other bits of data in there in, in, in a more thorough way. Um, but so many countries have um, just kind of monthly data at the moment is the kind of default with a month or two or three months lag. Uh, and then some countries uh, a much bigger lag than that. So, for example, Indonesia, it's very hard to understand without a sizable delay, what's happening on countries uh, like in Indonesia or, or Russia or other countries like that. Oh, it's really useful, I think, for uh, certainly for me. I'm, I, I, I always look for data like that, and it's open access. I think that's a big difference. Often you will have these reports, but they're behind a paywall. You might have to pay thousands of euros to get access to these reports and getting the data, um, and yours is, is open access. So that's, that's really great. I actually, I have one final question, um, which is, um, how does one become uh, a kind of clean transition analyst like you are, Dave, looking at uh, renewables from being a trader or a, a trading analyst? I think you've been working for one of the biggest utilities in in Europe. I think it was Eon, um, you know, a German based based company. You worked there for thirteen years, and then you sort of switched uh, and focused on something quite different. If, if you don't mind talking about sort of what motivated uh, you, you know, that <laughs> transition, I, I, I would I would be quite interested in it. Uh, well, it's, it's, uh, it, was, it was a really interesting job at the time. You have uh, it was 13 years basically working on the trading floor, looking at the electricity um, markets, uh, the demand side, and then, uh, then the, the supply side. So really getting to understand um, how how markets work, where something like electricity, where you've got an underlying transition, but at the same time, you're like everything's happening on an hourly basis. Like every day is always a, a new day and brings interesting analysis and interest, something different to look at. So <laughs> it kept me entertained a lot longer than I thought it would be uh, keeping me entertained. And you kind of like reach a level where you're like, maybe I should be doing something more useful with my life. So, um, so I started looking at some other things unrelated to energy. Then I realized that 
actually, I don't know anything about those areas. <laughs> I'm just way out of my depth. So, so something I could do maybe that actually uses some of the experience I've got. So yeah, so since then I left in the end of 20, uh, 2012, so uh, almost 10 years ago, or 10 years ago. So um, almost since then doing a weirdly similar job in some ways to what I had been doing then of, of, of trying to analyze electricity markets and, and tracking the electricity transition. Um, uh, and um, it's, it's a lot more satisfying when you when you like, to kind of relate to your previous question around you know talking about open data and the desire to make open data like data open like it's uh, it was really interesting working within a company to come up with different insights and thinking about that um, uh, impacting trading decisions and the PNL you can see that happen literally in real time with your PNL reports um, but um, but when you're actually looking at from this perspective and you can actually share that with a more open community that reaches towards policymakers and other stakeholders that can help kind of inform the debate um, across the whole of the, um, yeah, across everyone involved in that transition. It's, a, it's, it's just an awful lot more, an awful lot more satisfying to, um, to be able to do that. So um, uh, I, I do really enjoy conversations like this and like with other people where you can be super open about, those insights, and they're not—they're not kind of that you, uh, you can talk in a in a very open way, um, rather than be holding everything under under bars because it's uh, confidential, um, commercially sensitive data. Uh, Dave, I was wondering if I maybe get your perspective on the role of um, AI and um, computer and machine learning in in this like huge amount of data that you're using, obviously in a day to day role um, that grid operators are using as um, more and more data points come in. Um, as generators are using, as they're getting able to understand um, their uh, generators a lot more and knowing how weather affects them, et cetera, et cetera. The amount of data we're using is growing. Are you using AI? Can you see a future where um, particularly grid operators um, might be using AI a lot more to help uh, support their decision-making? And the same for you for market production, uh, market uh, predictions? I think um, there, there's so many different places where all of that has a, has a role in some ways. Um, uh, I really like uh, Open Climate Fix and the work uh, that they've been doing, looking at solar um, uh, forecasting solar. So working with National Grid in the UK to um, uh, to try to come up with a, a machine learning predictive way to better forecast the levels of solar generation um, and things like that are really essential to helping with some of the flexibility and 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 and, and the balancing of the uh, of the demand supply from from grids perspective. Um, so there's areas like that that are really um, really interesting. We've got um, uh, another organisation that we work with called uh, Transition Zero. You may have heard of and. Uh, you might have seen some of their work trying to look at um, machine learning and satellite data to understand, um, uh, to almost view um, a, a mission. Um, you can actually look at um, the smoke coming out, sorry, steam coming out of the cooling towers to be able to ascertain how, uh, how power plants are being run where you have no data. Um, and then um, they've just taken on a, a guy called Lucas who was working at University of Oxford before on on using machine learning to identify solar panels across the world from satellite data. So to be able to, so he did some mapping of the world's solar power capacity by using satellite data and identifying bits of that. So there's, there's all sorts of um, things all the way through um, um, that are even unlocked with ChatGTP now. So on ChatGTP, um, uh, um, 
um, uh, uh, my comms department are going to hit me over the head for saying this, but uh, I found out the other day that you can actually create a press release by just typing an executive summary and say, can you take a press release? And they're like, here's a press release. Um, so uh, so um, that, that's, how, that, 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 that's, that's how far some of this has come now. So yeah, there's all sorts of room for, for technology in all sorts of ways within this. And I think it's quite hard to, for, for many, especially kind of nonprofit organizations to keep track on that. And, um, and for us within a data community, it, like it is so good working with other organizations and sharing some of that and knowing what other organizations are going through. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time here today, Dave. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on What Matters. Uh, before we go, we ask all of our guests, if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the energy market or the energy sector look like in 10 to 20 years' time? Um, one of the reasons I will work in the, I want to work in the electricity sector is, is firstly, not just in terms of getting clean electricity in the first place to be able to decarbonize that, but the opportunities that come with electrification. And it's just going to be so exciting to see how the whole of the energy sector starts electrifying in the next few years through electric vehicles and how they're integrated within the grid, um, how how heat pumps come in and they're, uh, they're integrated within the grid, and then just all the flexibility that you need alongside that. And as you go through the transition, all of the, the innovation that will go alongside that, I do think that um, there is going to be um, the the that the kind of how things will look in 10 years uh, is kind of a little bit how we manage them as we go through this uh um continued um uh, expansion of wind and solar to replace coal and gas and that will continue at the most broadest level but underneath that there's going to be so much innovation in how to support the flexibility um, within that to make it cheaper and easier than i think that anyone had thought before um so i'm really excited about how all of that plays out but i don't for one second pretend that it's all uh, a magically easy thing that is just going to happen without any problems or any thoughts um, and that's probably the reason why it's going to be uh, as interesting as it will be uh thanks dave really interesting conversation um i would say appreciate your time today before we go uh, i'd just like to go around the table and ask what caught uh, my eye in the last week or so or probably over uh, the winter months anyway, at least. Uh, Michaela, let's begin with you. What caught your eye uh, over the last few weeks? Well, since the topic of AI already came up, while I was trying to take off time from podcast, I read that there's an app that can summarize a podcast discussion in two minutes, like it, our entire discussion, <laughs> like a blinkist for podcasts. And it got me a bit worried so here went my cold turkey on podcasts. <laughs> well, hopefully our listeners aren't uh, using that just yet, but nice shout out for them anyway. Um, Jan, what about you? What caught your eye? I would mention the Ember report, but I can't because we spent the entire podcast episode on it. Um, no, I think the other interesting um, report was from Bruegel, which is a Brussels-based uh, think tank, and they did a forecast for uh, gas demand in Europe and you know, in different scenarios, um, how it could be impacted by cold weather or different supplies. Uh, and the main finding was that we need to um, be much more serious about demand reduction. Uh, and um, of course, that is something I've been very passionate about for a long time. So I, it's, a, it's a great piece of work um, and I encourage people to take a look at it. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Dave, how about you? What caught your eye? 
Uh, well, actually, I'm the same. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to cheat and uh, still yarns. And the reason why I want to cheat and still <laughs> yarns is because um, there's a direct link back to, um, to to what we've been talking about, about that trend that's going to come in through 2023, which is you're going to see a big fall in gas generation through the, the power sector in, in Europe. So um, so in, the, in January, um, gas generation fell by 35% across the whole of the EU, it was massive. So where Bruegel, uh, you're like you looking at that data from 2022 and you're going, well, power sector did nothing last year. You had big falls, but it all came from from household and from industry. Um, this year, you're going to get big falls in overall Europe gas demand, and it's going to be coming, um, and, and a large amount of that is going to be coming from the power sector. Um, so that will be a, a really interesting for 2023. And what will be interesting then is to see how that continues to um, actually um, be ingrained in some more structural changes. So um, kind of what Jan's talking about, which is turning a kind of slightly unfortunate um, situation at the moment where a lot of that fall in demand on the gas and the electricity side is coming from a cost of living crisis and a, almost a solidarity of the energy crisis um, um, uh, uh, into actual genuine ongoing energy efficiency demand that's going to be reducing the bills for people and increasing the quality of their life. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, it could be a fascinating year uh, in the gas sector. Um, for me, um, we mentioned the difficulties that the wind industry uh, are facing at the moment, uh, and there was a really interesting article in the Financial Times uh, end of January. Uh, kind of, it was a good primer, basically looking at how the main man- main manufacturers are, are really struggling at the moment, and I know that a lot of that is extending into much of the supply chain, um, and that twenty twenty three is shaping up to be an even more difficult year for many of them, um, and it's just I think a little bit worrying. Obviously, I know um, it should be a time the wind, the wind industry should be um, going gangbusters to install a load of capacity. And at the minute, some of the major suppliers, especially the Western suppliers, are really struggling. So it's an interesting sort of time for the wind industry. Um, and 2023 is shaping up to be a difficult year once more uh, for them. Um, so hopefully there'll be some uh, good news for them from a regulatory or a political view very soon. But I say, uh, a worrying time for the sector at the moment. My thanks to uh, Dave, Jan and Michaela uh, for their time today. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Dave? Uh, I'm at Colfree Dave. Jan? I'm at Jan Rosenau. And Michaela? At CitizenSane1. Uh, if you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to What Matters.